Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, March 13th, 2016. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Here's Pastor Angela. Thank you again for this opportunity for me to present hope for all of us this morning. And uh, as we start, I have a riddle for you. Now, if you know the answer to this riddle, please don't blurt it out. Let other people chew on it a little bit. And this is a hypothetical type of riddle story. So, uh, there is a father and a son, and they're driving on the road, and, uh, and there was a, an accident. And it was a tragic accident. The father passed away in the accident. The son was taken to the hospital, uh, in the ER, on the operation table. The doctor comes in, sees the boy, and says, I cannot operate. This is my son. How is this possible? Think about it. Ponder. Okay, what's the answer? His mom. You heard it from the other service. A woman. (laughs) You're cheating. No. Uh, Yes, his mother. You know, when I heard this 10 years ago or so, I thought, what? How How did I miss this? I'm a woman. Of course women can be doctors. Of course they can do whatever they want. But then I started thinking about this, that it's actually a systemic problem sometimes where we place people in these categories and we don't even know we're doing it. And we make these judgment calls and we accidentally devalue people without even recognizing that we're doing it. Or maybe we don't see the potential in somebody because we put them in a class or a category or put a label on them. And Jesus this morning is teaching us about human value. Regardless of our gender, regardless of the ethnicity, sexual identity, economic status, regardless if somebody's done something right or something wrong, Human value is placed on us by God. God has said, you are my child, you belong to me, and I want you to live into this identity. So we must be reminded this morning, I must be reminded this morning, that we are called then to not devalue ourselves, because that happens, and to not devalue other people, even if it's done accidentally. Please pray with me as we enter into the scripture. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, who is our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we acknowledge, Spirit, that you are here in our midst. Prepare our hearts so that we can receive you. Help us, O Lord, be open to your guidance, to your leading, O Lord. Help us repent if we need to surrender something and help us feel empowered, our God, to step into this identity as children of God. In Christ we pray. Amen. So I invite you now, you're welcome to pick up a Bible if you so choose to. There are some in the pews. This story will be up here as well. And we're starting in John 8. John 8, verse 1, is actually right in the middle of a sentence. So we're going to start one verse before John seven fifty three, And a little bit of a context here. Jesus has been teaching. 
He's been doing a lot of teaching, and he's been at the temple teaching. This is the end of a massive festival called the Festival of Booths. The reason why I know this festival very well is because five years ago I had a, a roommate who was a Messianic Jewish person, and she wanted to celebrate this festival, so we started building a tent or something outside in our patio, and she wanted us to worship there for seven days, and it took a really long time to put up, and then we got in trouble because we didn't have to have a shelter. Anyways, it was this long thing, and, um, and so basically, thousands of years before this time, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they had to find shelter, and the Lord provided shelter. So they celebrated that the Lord provided shelter. That's basically the whole festival. And so Jesus is coming to the end of this festival, and he's been doing a lot of teachings. And it starts here in verse 53. Then each of them went home after this teaching, while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, which was right outside of Jerusalem. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple, All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. When I was a young girl, I thought, oh, it's like church. So Jesus had a pulpit, and they all sat in pews. Well, the temple is massive. (laughs) There's, like, room for, like, hundreds of people there. And I just want to point out a little bit about what this looks like. Right here, this whole thing is the temple, first of all. It's massive. Right in the center right here is called the Holy of Holies. That's where God resides. One priest could go in there once a year, the holiest of them all, and do some sacrifice or prayer right in this area. This right here is where the rest of the altars were. The priests, the rest of the priests that were a part of the holy group here, uh, were allowed in this area. Then, of course, we had the men that were allowed right here, okay? No woman was allowed through this this area. This is all men. And there was a gate right here, and the women were allowed right here. And then, if you were a Gentile, you had a place too. You were allowed right here. And if you were disabled or there was some kind of sickness, you were allowed right here. Everybody had a place in the system. It's set up in a very caste system. So where did Jesus teach when he taught? Many of the commentaries say that because it was the festival, after all, he had to be where all the Hebrew people were, and he couldn't just be where there were only men. So he probably hung around this area, the women's court. So let's continue our story. Right in the middle of his teaching... The scribes and the the Pharisees, the holy ones, right, like we talked about, the sinless ones, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, she's the sinful one. See, the sinless one, ones brought the sinful one and making her stand before all of them. So first of all, as you begin to imagine the story, how in the world did they catch her in adultery? Where were they exactly to catch her in adultery? Were they like hiding behind the chair? I mean, how did they catch her in adultery? Obviously, this feels weird right from the beginning. 
So they catch her. I mean, later on they say, we caught her in the act. So they saw what happened, or so they say. And then the other question is, where's the guy? (laughs) There's no guy in this story. Um, There's just this woman. So they caught her. The fact that the word is adultery here meant that she was either married or she was betrothed. She was promised to somebody. And if she was promised to somebody, we're talking about a 13, 14, 15-year-old. This is a young girl that was dragged out of this house, humiliated through town. The temple's on a hill. They made her walk as a spectacle right on top of that right on top to that temple in the middle of that crowd because the festival is there. And not only is the festival there and everybody's there, the Roman soldiers are parading back and forth, making sure that there is peace because Caesar had decreed if anybody starts a riot, if any violence occurs, we will grab that person and crucify them. So here she is humiliated in front of everybody. I put myself in that situation. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine how she felt in this moment. And right away here in verse four, they said to him, teacher, this woman, sorry, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Verse five. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So the idea here is you, the crowd comes around in a mob mentality. You pick up stones off the ground and you start chucking at this person that's right in the center. And not only is it shameful, but bloody, a mess. This is a horrific scene. So obviously they just said, we're, the law says that we are to stone such women. There's no mention again for the guy. Now, what do you say? Jesus is placed between a rock and a hard place. Okay? He can't possibly say, don't obey the law. He was just teaching a chapter before. We all should obey the law. And in fact, chapter 7 says, you all don't obey the law. You're all, he was implying the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the holy people. He can't possibly say that. Or he can't do the reverse either. Because if he was the first to stone her, gosh, he would be captured and crucified by the Roman soldiers. He is put in the most uncomfortable, awkward situation. And when that happens, when you're put in an uncomfortable situation, what do you do? You just don't respond. Jesus. Okay, in verse 6. They said this to test him so that they they might have some charge to bring against him. And then Jesus responds by bending down, completely avoiding this conflict, and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, people used the dirt and the ground to do teaching at that time. Um, there's commentaries on what he possibly wrote. We don't know. The, the story doesn't say what he wrote. He was writing on the ground. Some say that he possibly wrote the sins of the Pharisees because he was all-knowing. That's what the early church fathers have said. They were writing that he was writing down the Pharisees and the scribes' sins. 
Other people say that maybe he was writing the law to, to kind of be reminded of the law. I like to think of Jesus just doodling. That'd be funny. He was like, I'm not listening to any of this. <laughs> I'm just making little circles. <laughs> and, uh, of course, they wanted an answer in verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. If you have never done anything wrong, go ahead. Go ahead and obey the law. And I would love to think that those words were so convicting. I mean, those words are convicting to us, right? I mean, when we hear those words, we think, gosh, who am I to judge? I've been, I've done things in my life that I'm not proud of. I've been caught in uncomfortable situations that were unwise. Or maybe I was accused in ways that weren't even fair, but I couldn't really defend myself. Regardless, I've been in that place, and who am I to judge? But I also wonder here that the Pharisees and the scribes just, they just were afraid. After Jesus said this in verse 8, Uh, It says here, and once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. He keeps doodling, whatever. He keeps writing on the ground. And verse 9, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Now, if somebody says to you, okay, whoever is the holiest one here, you go first. And you're an intern. You're going to look at your supervisor. You're going to say... I'm just an intern priest. I don't even know what I'm doing. (laughs) But you're the elder, so why don't you throw the stone first? Because you want to obey the law, and that's the law. Um, And here you see that the elders, they had to let go of their stones. They let go of their stones, and they walked away. And then the rest of the, of the the scribes and the Pharisees at that time went along with them. Everybody left. Everybody there left, and it was Jesus left alone with the woman standing before him. Just Jesus and her. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they, the accusers? The word here, the accusers in in the Greek, it, it pretty much says those people that are destroying your reputation, those people that are trying to tear you down, those people that are degrading or oppressing you, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Again, this word, has no one found you unfit? When you condemn a building, you're pretty much saying that it's unusable, that it's worthless. Has no one called you worthless? She said, no one, sir. This is the first time she has a voice. I want you to notice here that she never confessed to anything, and she didn't apologize for anything. She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. So let's break this down. This word sin 
amartia in Greek literally means missing the point and the mark. It was a part of their everyday language. It's like, oh, I didn't put the groceries away in the refrigerator, I sinned. You know, we don't talk like that in our culture. It's always about a moral code that we haven't quite, it's a religious term. But Amartya at that time, it was like flawed. You know, you did something and, and it, it was, you were, you're just flawed. Things happen, they didn't turn out the way you wanted it to turn out. Condemnation here in the Greek is katakrino, kata down krino judgment. It's to degrade. It's to devalue. It's the opposite of uplifting somebody. It's pushing them down. So, verse three, in summary, we have the holy ones, the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse seven, that live in a spirit of condemnation. They want this woman to be condemned. They live in this spirit of condemnation where everything is on a caste system, a worth system. You see, they were allowed to be a little bit closer to the Holy of Holies. Hence, they were given a little bit more worth in their their society. But Jesus, Jesus turns everything upside down. Verse 3, he takes the sinful, the one that's seen sinful, and says to her, no condemnation. I'm going to read this again in verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. I don't degrade you. I don't devalue you. Go your way and from now on do not sin. Do not miss the point again. Now, how in the world is it possible to not sin? <laughs> I mean, this is like a, even for the, the, the best priest, this is an impossible task. This is a hyperbole. There is no way to not, to, to not sin. I mean, we all are human beings. We all fall by mistake or on purpose. It happens. But I think here Jesus is saying something much deeper. He's saying to her, I want you to live into the identity that you are worth something. Not just something, but that you're valuable to God. Live as if you belong here. In the holy of holies. Not like you just belong here in a caste system. Live as if you are already in relationship with the living God. Live as the child of God that you are already called to be. And treat other people the same way. Because if we do that, then we experience, we really open up our hearts to a beautiful, a beautiful life. All over scripture, this no condemnation is everywhere. Romans 8, 11, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In John 3, 17, after 3, 16, John 3, 16 is the most famous verse for God so loved the world. Okay, the verse right afterwards, it says, indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world to place value or devalue people, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And in Romans 2, 1, therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. In other words, you're living in a spirit of condemnation 
Because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. So this is peppered all over the scripture. This is a key theme of what Jesus came to present. That there is no more caste system. That the curtain has been ripped in the sense that everyone, anyone, can have a relationship with the living God. So then I got to thinking, why did this condemnation happen so often in this world? Not just condemnation where people condemn other people. We, we start with condemning ourselves. I mean, that voice that says, you're not enough, it's not enough. You, you, you size someone up, the sizing up that we do, and you say, gosh, I'm not as talented or as good-looking or as... Uh, whatever it is. I don't have as much worth as this person. I can never, I can never do what they do. I, I don't even compare. You know, when we are in a society where that happens all the time, it's easy to start inflicting yourself with this kind of self-low value. In fact, Dr. Susan Lechman here says of psychological, psychology today, Here's a brief inventory of sources of low self-value. Authority figures who are abusive, in conflict, non-involved, okay? Bullying, trauma, spiritual abuse. This all can cause this self-condemnation that happens. And then what about when we are condemning towards others? Because I've experienced this self-condemnation many times. Being a female pastor, you would, I mean, there's like five female pastors in the Antelope Valley. (laughs) I mean, I can, I know them by name. Um, This is not a context here where that's really accepted. In fact, there's a lot of discrimination, and I'm considered many times a little girl. I've been referred to as sweetheart and, you know, pushed aside And there's been times when I've cried out to the Lord and I've said, God, you've called me to be a pastor, really? (laughs) Like, and you made me a woman? Like, if you just, if you had made me a guy, this would be easier. And I hear the Spirit tell me, you're a woman, and yes, you are called. (laughs) Like, I call all my children. (laughs) It happens to all of us. But I've been also one to condemn. I found myself in this condemning place. And before I tell you my story, what is that, why does that happen? Dr. Stephen Stanzi says, devaluing others requires a certain amount of adrenaline. There's a rush that goes through your body, which creates a temporary feeling of power and certainty. You feel right, although you are more likely (laughs) self-righteous. And here's my story. About five years ago, uh, I was in conversation with one of my friends, and she was telling me about her then-boyfriend, now-husband, who uh, was in prison for... 10 to 14 felonies, something like that. And she asks me, and I was still going through the ordination process, and she asks me, you know, um, do you think my boyfriend would be able to go through the Methodist church to become a pastor? 
And I said to her, Huh, how many felonies does he have? And she said, What does that matter? How many felonies he has? I'm like, Well, uh, I'm sure they'll look at that and, you know, consider if that's appropriate or something to that extent, which I recognized soon after I put my foot in my mouth. And said, oh, there I am. She rebuked me harshly and said, well, don't you believe in forgiveness? Don't you believe in redemption? Don't you believe that God changes lives? How much more powerful is it for somebody who's been through it with 10 to 14 felonies to come out of it and then be in a pastoral role to walk with somebody? And she basically called me out for being... judgmental for taking into consideration his past life and thinking that possibly he can't do what I do. God calls all people to be ministers of God. I recognize that even though that was an accident, we fall into these judgments. It's like we have been trained from young babies to size people up and to see what they look like and who they are and what they've done and what they haven't done. It's a part of our society, unfortunately. But God is calling us out of this. God is calling us to value people just because they're human beings, just because they are loved by God. And Jesus' message isn't just a moral code for us to follow. It actually makes our life better. There are studies that say that people who value others have better lives. They are happier in their lives. Like this person here, Michael Kimmel. He did a TED Talk uh, in 2015. He's a sociologist, leading researcher of masculinity and men at Stony Brook University. And he specifically talks about gender discrimination as a white man, which I love. And he says, valuing people, specifically gender equality, is fair, right, and just. We all know that part. As Christians, we all know that part. But then he continues on and says, those countries that are most gender equal are happier. They have a better sense of life, purpose. They get along better. They are just happier people. And this research is conclusive. There is no doubt about this. In fact, more gender equal companies do better. Like people get less sick. Um, the quality of work is higher. Um, the turnover is lower. They do more work in less time. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And this is my favorite part. Egalitarian families, families that choose to share life together instead of just like, I'll pick up a little bit or whatever that language is. Whoever, whoever says that, it could be male or female. But those who decide to share life together, to raise their children together, to have uh, income that's shared like in one bank account, they're happier. Children do better in school. They're less sick. 
um, couples are emotionally and physically more healthy. That means they go to ERs less often. They're more likely to go to the doctor and do routine checkups. They're less mentally ill. And the best part, they share in more sexual intimacy. They're more connected. Because God has a way of saying truth to us that will better our life. That's the point. That is the point. That we're called into acknowledging our value. And when we see another person, and we call them our partner, and yet we devalue them or hurt them, it doesn't benefit them or us. We're hurting ourselves. Those who are condemning, what does it say in Romans? Those who are condemning the other person. We're actually living in a spirit of condemnation. So God is calling us this morning to reconsider, to reconsider how we treat other people, how we treat ourselves. Christ teaches us about human value regardless of our gender, ethnicity, sexual identity, economic status. And this morning we must be reminded, I must be reminded, that we are called then to not devalue ourselves or others, even accidentally. Let us remember Jesus' words. Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And I want to end our time with this beautiful prayer written out of this book by Ken Geyer, Moments with the Savior. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, I confess with shame that there are times I have stood in the midst condemned, and there are times I have stood in the crowd condemning. There are times my heart has been filled with adultery, and there are times my hands have been filled with stones. Forgive me for a heart that is so prone to wander, so quick to forget my vows to you. Forgive me, too, for my eagerness in bringing you the sins of others and my reluctance in bringing my own. Forgive me for the times I have stood smugly, pharisaic, and measured out judgment to others, others I'm not qualified to judge, others who you, although qualified, refuse to. Help me be more like you, Jesus, full of grace and truth. Help me to live not by the letter of the law, but by the spirit of compassion you showed to that woman so many mornings ago. Give me, I pray, the wisdom of the older ones in regard to the stumblings of others so my hands may be first to drop their stones and my feet first to leave the circle of the self-righteous. Thank you for those sweet words of forgiveness. Neither do I condemn you. Words that flow so freely from your lips. Words that I have heard so often when I have stumbled. And in the strength of those unmerited words, help me to go my way and sin no more. We pray this in Christ. Amen.